Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. As we continue our study in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, we'll be looking at it in its entirety. It's a pretty big chapter, but it's a familiar story for a lot of us, I would imagine. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer again and ask for His help with us. Pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Holy Word, we pray that You would help us with it. I think particularly for this passage, at least for me, in many ways it is so familiar that it can be a detriment to me. Maybe to others as well, that we believe we have You figured out and that we have mastered this portion and should move on to something that is perhaps challenging to us or something that is more applicable to our lives now. Lord, help us to never see or never come to a point where we think the gospel is no longer applicable to our lives or that we would come to a point that we would ever think that we have finally learned to fully seek you for comfort and rest for our souls. Because we have a lot to learn. Lord, we pray that as we open your word, you would teach us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as we come to this passage in Daniel 3, it reminded me of the many, many times I heard this as a kid, whether it be in Sunday school with the flannel graph or youth camps and such, or even as a youth minister hearing it at the camps that I took students to many times, hearing the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it always went something like this. There are these three Hebrew boys who would not worship the statue that they were told to worship. They refused to do it, so Nebuchadnezzar tossed them into an abnormally hot furnace, and they lived. So, now you should go out and be brave at school when it comes to your faith. I always had a real problem with that because it really didn't line up with many of the stories that I had read as a young man, as a young adult, concerning the persecution of the church because... When the church was persecuted in history and even in modern times, they weren't stories of people living through torture and death. Rather, many in the church died for their faith, even in their own bravery and courage. I'd always walk away from the story that was being told and the challenge given to me, now go be brave at school, more skeptical than when I came to it, not because I didn't believe the story actually happened. I don't think I've ever had that issue but because I didn't fashion myself as one of those heroes. I'd like to thank the yes, if given that opportunity to not be thrown into a furnace, I might also take up the mantle. But apparently countless thousands throughout history weren't brave enough to be saved by the furnace or whatever sadistic torture the ruler of that day saw fit to inflict upon the Christians. Added to this, I've only ever lived a life of comfort and ease. And so it's hard for me to translate obey the king or you'll die to be brave at school. Not cussing when my friends were was hardly the same kind of situation that these three Hebrew boys in our text faced. And so it was really hard for me. As I've grown in my faith and my understanding of the Bible, I've come to realize that the issue in those 
interpretations of the text weren't the application necessarily, but the man-centered focus at which we come to the text. Rather than seeing God in this text, we focus on man alone. So rather than being comforted in our trial, we are made to question the severity of our trials or our own courage in standing strong up to that severity. We are encouraged to be more like Daniel and his buddies rather than finding peace in the Lord. So as we move into this passage today, we're going to focus on the plight of man while we should not be the focus when it comes to the text. Rather, we should focus on the Savior who brings us through the fiery trial and into salvation. So with that, we'll break the text down into three ideas. The worship of man, the obedience of man, and then finally, our obedience to man, and then finally, salvation of man. So with that, let's look together at the text, Daniel chapter 3, reading in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and prefects and the governors and counselors and treasurers and the justices and magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And therefore certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve the gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that, that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound, their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the fire furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. And their hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent the angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember, last week we looked at Daniel's telling and interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and how it affected the king so much that he promoted Daniel and his friends to significant places of power in the Babylonian kingdom. Chapter 1, we have this kind of motif of bad versus good. We see the same thing in chapter 2. Bad versus good. And again, in chapter 3, we see the same thing. In fact, most of the book of Daniel is set up in this way. Something is showed to us that is bad, and then something is set up for us that is good, and the good overcomes the bad. This is a good thing for us. And this is something that we see particularly in the first half of the book is accomplished by Daniel and his friends, largely being put forth as these people who are doing the right thing. This is why so many come to this book with the mentality of, if I can just be like Daniel, then I can conquer evil. We could do much worse than being like Daniel and his friends, but Daniel is not the star of his own book. Two things we've learned in preaching and teaching through books of the Bible here at Redeemer is that man is flawed and needs a Savior, and that each book then presents us with that Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've been here any length of time, you heard me say those words in some form. And I repeat them today because 
I believe this text in particular carries with it so much potential for moralism. If we are not careful, what is moralism? Well, moralism is the idea that there's some behavior in, or some common sense that we should glean from the text and we should even try to recreate in our own lives, which isn't bad in and of itself. But if we aren't careful, the Bible becomes a book of fables. And you know what fables have at the end of them? Morals. And a book of fables isn't necessarily real or binding on our lives in any way. It's just a book that, you know, maybe tells me how I should act when things are good, when things are right. Or maybe I can just kind of start to interpret that in my own way then, if it's not true, because because Scripture is just really how I see it and how I interpret it for today and for my life. You know, you hear a lot of people say something like, well, this is my truth for today. God's Word is God's truth for all days. And when our truth doesn't line up with God's truth, our truth shows itself to be a lie. We do not have truth that is independent of God's truth. We don't have any truth of our own at all. We'll see that as we come to this text today. God is the object of our worship and our obedience. And any turning from that results in error. That brings us to the first point, the worship of man. Look with me again at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is significant considering uh, his dream, right? When In his dream, he dreamed of a statue and the head of that statue was gold and Daniel told him that you, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, are the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar should have gained from that message, repent and believe, but rather what he heard is, build a whole statue out of gold then. Daniel told him that his kingdom represented that head of gold, but he wasn't having it. He went ahead and made the whole statue out of gold as a testament to the fact that he believed his kingdom wasn't going anywhere. If we have any doubt of this, we see how much he loved himself. Look at verses 1-7 through again closely. I'm not going to read it all again because there's a whole lot of repetition. What is the thing that is repeated most of anything? That Nebuchadnezzar had set up over and over again. We are told that he set this up and for the dedication of his statue there was going to be a full party of music and worship to him. It's a worship service about the man, Nebuchadnezzar. And anybody who refused to Worship at his service was going to be destroyed by a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar himself refused to be destroyed by the stone that the builders rejected. We read about from last week, he would reject not only the stone, but all the other kingdoms that would come after him, that he was told that he was going to be destroyed, but no, he's going to build this whole statue out of gold, and he is not going to be destroyed, and everyone is going to worship him. The consequences, again, for not worshiping him, death, fiery furnace, a horrific way to die, but nothing was, was horrific enough for blasphemy against the king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar. One of the things I immediately noticed about this passage is how it could just as easily be any worship service at all if it wasn't, of course, for the golden statue in the center representing the man of Nebuchadnezzar. 
people falling prostrate, right? The biblical act of worship that we see throughout the Bible is an act of worship to God, this prostrating one's body. Instruments being played, which is another act of worship to God. Loud proclamations being given, people responding to those proclamations in worship with their own responses. It could easily be a worship service anywhere. Of course, the only difference here is the object of their worship. I've lived through the worship wars of the 90s and the early 2000s. Many of you did as well. My main takeaway from it is that when man is the center of worship, there are severe consequences for anyone who disagrees with how things should be done. What were those severe consequences in so many of the churches that even many of us were a part of? Those churches split. Families leave. The fiery furnace will be ignited in the hearts of those who refuse to bow down to the preferences of someone else. The worship service can have all the appearance of worship. But if man is at the center, we may as well build a golden statue in the center of our church and start bowing down to it as well. Man can be found at the center of a worship when man is whom we are trying to please, or even whom we are trying to attract. The purpose of our worship service is 100% the worship of God. 100%. Other things can come out of that service, of course. Believers can be encouraged. Hopefully that's happening here at our worship services, that you are encouraged and strengthened in your faith. Unbelievers are hearing the gospel. Hopefully that is happening here at our worship services. Hopefully people are hearing the gospel and being encouraged in their own faith. Children and adults are being taught how they ought to worship. Being taught about God, the God whom we worship. Being taught how we ought to live. All of these things are good and a right part of worship. But the purpose of the worship service stands alone, the worship of God. And as soon as it becomes something else, we slip right into blasphemy. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this book, says, Blasphemy is a natural condition of the human heart, and it must deliberately be rejected. And when the worship of God is first and foremost, obedience to Him will be a natural outflow from that. That brings us to the next point, obedience to man. Look with me at verses 8 through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound, and he goes over the instruments again. I love that list of instruments. It's just fantastic. And he's just going to refer, look, they should be worshiping you, but but we've heard, verse 12, that certain Jews whom that you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The Babylonian officials tattle on the three Hebrew boys, probably because they're jealous of them. So Nebuchadnezzar responded how he always does. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond to just about anything? In fury. In his fury, he questioned them, making sure they understood the consequences of their choice. Listen, if you do this, I'm going to throw you into the burning, fiery furnace. Over and over, we see those three words over and over, burning, fiery furnace. And notice their response. King Nebuchadnezzar, all-powerful, can choose to just kill people at will. We've already seen that, right? And he has this fiery furnace that's so big that people can walk around in it, apparently. And he's going to, he's threatening death with it. 
And these three Hebrew boys, this is how they respond. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Can you imagine them saying that? We have no need to answer you, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was God. He had just erected a statue to himself. Remember the quote from Nietzsche I gave you a few weeks ago. Nebuchadnezzar thought, if there is a God, I cannot believe that it isn't me. Yet these three Hebrew boys said, we do not owe you an answer at all for the choice that we've made. They knew the consequences. They knew what was going to happen as a result of what they said. And their response is really something that we should all hang on to in our own times of difficulty. We're probably not going to be up against the likes of Nebuchadnezzar, but we are given plenty of opportunity to disobey before a holy God concerning the trials that we go through. Look at verses 17 and 18. If this be so, our God whom we serve, this be so, meaning being thrown into the fiery furnace, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Nebuchadnezzar said, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He says, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from out of your hand, O Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If he throws into the fiery furnace, God is able to deliver us. But if not, if he doesn't, we'll still obey. Notice the main idea here. This is the whole, this is the passage that the whole, uh, this is the point that the whole passage pivots on. Their point wasn't that they didn't know whether or not God was going to save them. They just knew that it was right to obey. God's reason for saving these boys are his own. We'll get to that in a moment as he does save them. However, they had no, no idea what the outcome was going to be at all. Up at this, to this point in their lives, they knew some of the stories of some of the most faithful men in the history of Israel. They read the stories of what happened to faithful men. They read that Elijah and Elisha were chased their whole lives by wicked kings and queens. They read that Isaiah had likely been martyred in his old age for faithful, being faithful to preach God's whole word. They knew that God didn't always preserve earthly life for those who were obedient to him in their lives. Our ability to obey God's word isn't contingent upon the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And let me say this. Simple obedience to God's plain commands does not make one brave or a hero. Sure, these boys were literally standing in the face of fire, but their choice to obey was just a normal part of their lives. They didn't see it as something heroic that they were going to have to do, whether it was in front of a crazy king or behind closed doors when they were praying with their other friend, Daniel. They weren't sure what the outcome was going to be, but they wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know that they weren't going to obey him. They were going to obey their God. When we start to think and hear this, 
This is important, particularly for those who we look at in our faith as heroes and celebrities even. When we start to think that obedience is heroic, then we lose who the real hero of the story is. The real hero is the one whom we are able to rest in. That's our Lord Jesus. The one that they were able to rest in in that day as they looked forward to the day that Jesus would come. The reason they were so sure in their stance is because they were resting on the promises of God in Christ. When we start to see obedience as brave or heroic, then we are in danger of starting to think that we are owed something for our obedience. And we aren't. We are owed the promises of God, not because we've somehow ascended to them, but because He promised them to us. Not because we deserve them, but because God always keeps His promises. He keeps those promises, of course, not contingent on our obedience. If it was, that was the case, then we would have nothing to rest on at all. He keeps them even in spite of our disobedience. He keeps them because He's God, and He cannot deny Himself. And that's the real picture here. Everyone in this story deserves the fiery furnace. Every one of them. But God in His mercy chooses to save some and to teach the others that He is God. God is the hero here. And He shows up here just when we'd expect Him to. And that brings us to the next point, the salvation of man. Look again at verses 19 through 23. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery or to the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was so urgent, the fire was overheated and the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So we have this dramatic scene. The only thing hotter than Nebuchadnezzar's anger is the furnace itself, which was heated up to seven times. It's so hot that it kills the people that threw the boys in. It's pretty hot. Nebuchadnezzar has no concern for life other than his own. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was finished with these blasphemers once and for all, but instead... They were inside this giant furnace walking around. And Nebuchadnezzar even needs to ask, didn't we just put three guys in there? But there's one in there who appears like the son of the gods. Pretty incredible. Isaiah prophesied that there would be days like this. I don't know if Isaiah's words are specific to this particular event, but they sure do seem like it. Whether or not they were, they fit really well. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. We read it today in our call to worship, but let's look at it again. And our song, How Firm a Foundation, referred to it as well. Isaiah 43, I'm going to look at verses 1 through 3. And understand, this book was available to those, those boys as they knew these words. 
But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Why? Why was it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could rest on that promise? Because they were brave? No. Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And I love this next part because think about how many times we have heard their names over and over in chapter 3. How many times are the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego repeated? It's a lot. These are the names that were given to them by the Babylonians. I have called you by name, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You are mine. Sure, the Babylonians call you by different names, but I have called you by name, and I will be with you. Nebuchadnezzar readily killed those closest to him, but God came down and was there with them in the fire. There's no proof at all that the fourth man in the fire was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, though I tend to believe that 100% in my own understanding of this text and my own understanding of the teachings of the whole of the Bible. But whatever is here, we have one who appears like the Son of God to Nebuchadnezzar, who's just a pagan. We have those three Hebrew boys comforted, tended to. So whatever it was, that was the pre-incarnate Christ there with them, that was just an angel of the Lord protecting and tending to them, Whatever it was, God was with them in the midst of the fire. When you walk through the fire, the flame shall not consume you. You are mine. I am with you. Jesus told his disciples in the night before he died, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What did he tell them in the Great Commission? Behold, I am with you always even until the end of the age. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God assures His people that He is with them, that He will save them. Then in the New Testament, we read that God Himself became man and dwelt among His people. The One who was the Son of Man, who called Himself the Son of Man, whom Daniel will later call the Son of Man, came and He walked among His people. He took the hate, the lies, the pain, the persecution, all of those things that were due to us, and He took them upon Himself. He took upon Himself the very wrath of a holy God for the payment of the sins of His people so that He could tell them, when you pass through the fire, you shall not be burned. Because He knew that God the Father is a consuming fire 
Because of his great love for us, we were not consumed. Instead, we have been saved for all time and eternity. It wasn't their obedience that saved the boys in the fire, and your obedience won't save you either. Even if you obeyed perfectly, the Bible tells us that the that our righteousness is like filthy rags, that our best offerings to God are just simply refuse outside of the knowledge of Christ our Lord and our Savior. Christ alone can offer a pleasing offering to the Father on your behalf, and He has done that by giving His life as a ransom for many on the cross. He has defeated sin and death and is alive today at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of His people Without Him, there is no hope in this world. Without Him, there is no presence of God, and God cannot say, I am with you. The only hope that we have is perhaps maybe a giant golden statue, fleeting at best. Rather than trust in the riches of this world or even your own obedience, trust in Jesus. If you haven't done so, call upon His name and be saved. For those of us who are in Christ, there is hope for us in this passage also. The hope is that God is with us. Even when we sometimes worship other things. I know for myself, I cannot say that there haven't been times that I've turned to the golden idol myself, believing that it can perhaps this time finally give me rest that it it promises, even though it never does. Even though we sometimes believe our obedience is securing our salvation, that just because I have lived a certain way or I believe a certain set of beliefs or I raise my kids a certain way that I have ascended, that I have become better than those around me, that perhaps I should erect a golden statue of myself proclaiming my own obedience. But our obedience doesn't save us. Can't possibly do that. Even though we believe it's true, He loves us nonetheless. He's right here with us. He will never leave or forsake us. And when we pass through the fires and the difficulties of this life, our God is able to deliver us. Over and over, He proves Himself able to deliver us. Brothers and sisters, if He doesn't, If he chooses to whatever reason, let us go through the midst of the fire to come out burned or even worse. He is still with us. While we will all leave this life one day, we have the sure hope in Christ that we will spend eternity with him because of what he has done for us, because he is with us. And in that, we can take rest and comfort for today and for all of our days. And it's that hope that we can offer to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer.